The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Good morning to you, Trinidad and Tobago. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Human Impact on Freedom 106.5 FM. And as usual, we start our feature with Dr. Rambokas called Doctors on Call. And... Uh, well, she's going to introduce her team today. So good morning to you, Dr. Rambokas. Good morning, Tosca, and good morning, listeners. And we have a special guest today, and this is Dr. Sashri Sukha. And we'll be talking today about laparoscopic surgery, colon cancer, and robotic surgery. So let me get right into it and introduce Dr. Sukai. He graduated from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland in 1994. He attained first place in surgical fellowship in 1998 from the Royal College of Surgeons. He also attained his MV by thesis with distinction from the National University of Ireland in 2002. He has over 25 peer-reviewed research articles in medical journals, and he has five book chapters in various surgical textbooks. He's a consultant general surgeon at the Port of Spain General Hospital. So good morning, Dr. Sokai. Uh, good morning, Dr. Ramukas, and thank you once again for uh, to Freedom 106.5 and yourself for having me on the program this morning. So Dr. Sokai, how long have you been practicing medicine and what was your motivation for choosing laparoscopic surgery in particular? Well, Nadira, I, as, as you quite rightly said, I graduated from the Royal College of Surgeons in 1994. Um, and as you know, when you graduate, uh, you start off knowing nothing. You start from the absolute bottom. Uh, you're an intern, then you go through uh, your surgical, your junior basic surgical training, uh, and then higher surgical training. So in, in all, it must have taken about 10 years before uh, you know I was qualified and got my fellowship in surgery. Right. Um, so could you tell us, like, what is the definition of laparoscopic surgery and how is it different from general surgery? Well, when you when you do graduate um, and you begin surgical training, it's all it all starts as general surgery. Um, and in general surgery, I mean the conventional open surgery where you make incisions uh, to expose you know tissue whether it be the abdomen the breast the neck for thyroid surgeries the the skull to, to expose the brain um and this is this is the mainstay of surgery and has been ever since um fortunately and fortuitous for me when i graduated um and i started my surgical training laparoscopic surgery um, which is also called minimal, minimally invasive surgery, uh, was now um, undergoing uh, an you know evolution in and it's in its evolutionary stages. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be in a in one of the, the the benchmark training centers in Dublin in Ireland, and you know it just so happened that that my mentor was a laparoscopic surgeon, um, and I started. How it's different to general surgery is that it, it involves not the conventional, um, you know, big incision. It involves minute uh, in, incisions, and by that I mean between five to ten millimeter incisions 
just sufficient for a port to, to be to be placed in in the, the offending um, organ meaning the abdomen the, the chest uh, in order to allow a camera um, and, and working instruments uh, to be to be placed the advantages of it and, and why why it's 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 thought to be superior one of the main um, drawbacks with open and conventional general surgery is patients complain of pain and a longer period in which to resume their normal activity. With laparoscopic surgery, um, and because the incisions are so much smaller, um, you know, their return to normal routine activity is a lot quicker. Their hospital stay is shorter um, and their pain, pain and cosmetic result is also much better. And for a patient, uh, they, they have, you know, very few will have any idea of what you have done um, within them and inside of them, but they will, you know, carry for the rest of their lives the scar that they're left with. So it's much preferable to them, um, you know, having minimally invasive or laparoscopic surgery. So beside the abdomen and the chest, can laparoscopic surgery be done in other locations of the body? And in what particular procedures is it the preferred method of surgical intervention? Well, um, to be quite honest, uh, Nadira, um, the gynecologists um, were the first to have used it, um, to use this minimally invasive form of surgery to do tubal ligations, uh, you know, ectopic pregnancies, um, that has also undergone uh, an evolutionary change now, whereby um, laparoscopic hysterectomies and tumor removals from a gynecological um, standpoint um, e exist now. Uh, the urologists um, are, are also, you know, for prostatectomies, they, they, have, they have mastered the art of doing um, a laparoscopic um, procedure for that, uh, bladder tumors, um, and other urological um, procedures. Uh, we will talk a bit later on about robotic surgery, and they, they have uh, absolutely mastered that with their prostatectomies. Then abdominal, all types, all different types of abdominal surgery, um, breast surgery, thyroid, head and neck surgery, um, and of course, within the thorax, doing lobectomies uh, to remove tumors uh, within the um, within the, the thoracic cavity. It's also been used, uh, believe it or not, in cardiac surgery with cardiac bypass grafting. Uh, but 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 robotic surgery has has taken over and, and, and shown to be more advanced than laparoscopic surgery for for uh, cardiac artery bypass grafting. Right. And you have been practicing uh, these surgical interventions for a, quite a while. What are some of the common disorders that you encounter in your practice? Um, well, you know, Dr. Ambukas, common things will always be being covered. So, so procedures like hernias, you know, inguinal, paraumbilical hernias, they, they, they remain um, very common and is the mainstay of our, our, our practice as general surgeons. Then the other stuff, you know, other things like hemorrhoidectomies, uh, lumps and bumps. When we progress then to moderate surgeries, it'll be, you know, your appendicectomies, 
gallbladders, cholecystectomies, and all of these are, 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 are you know, can be done, um, you know, using the laparoscopic method. And, and in fact, they are now, you know, the mainstay for, for those types of procedures. Moving more advanced now, you have laparoscopic gastrectomies, colectomies. Um, there are some now, uh, one or two in, in Trinidad that are doing pancreatectomies. So it's, it's, you know, there is no other uh, field in medicine that have undergone such revolutionary change and evolution, innovative and evolution as uh, the field of, of surgery. And we are, we are way far advanced than where we were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. I know. Um, did you um, mention hernias, right? So I just wanted to explain to the listeners out there that um, colectomies is removal of um, your colon, that gastrectomy is removal of your stomach, um, or partial removal of your stomach. Um, cholecystectomy is removal of your gallbladder <laughs> because they may not understand what the you know those terms mean so you mentioned hernias and hernias are exactly what and it, where do they normally exist uh hernias the definition of a hernia is an abnormal protrusion of an of a organ or part of an organ through uh you know an opening or weakness in the in the muscular musculature of the you know most commonly in the abdomen and the groin the most common types of hernias that we encounter is uh, something called an inguinal hernia, which is a hernia in the groin, um, either side on the right or left. It is much more common in men than in women. Um, and, and the causes, uh, you know, there are two types. They are hereditary which or, or congenital, whereby you're born with it, or, or else um, you can acquire um, you can acquire the hernia. You also get it around the, the, the belly button, uh, something called a paraumbilical hernia, um, because this, again, is a potential point of, of weakness as the umbilical cord between um, mo mother and baby, uh, you know, was at that spot. Right. So, uh, for instance, when uh, patients are prepping for different types of surgeries, whether it be laparoscopic or general surgery, what is some of the information that you provide to your patients prior? Well, firstly, Nadira, I mean, we have to all agree on, on a diagnosis and why we are, you know, uh, why we are doing surgery and to be sure that uh, there is no other alternative um, and by that, I mean surgery is intrusive. All surgery and all operations carry um, uh, an inherent risk because of exactly what it is. So uh, the patient, uh, the surgeon, and any other family members, the next of kin, we always sit and, and discuss to make sure that one, the diagnosis is correct, and two, that surgery is last the last resort, and that we, you know, that we would hope uh, for a favorable outcome. We weigh the risk against the benefit, and once the benefit of surgery is 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 more apparent, then we go along with surgery. 
when you're you're prepping the patient of course you have to you know medical legally uh, as well as, as getting an informed consent you must you know um detail the risks involved in that particular operation because all operations will carry i mean there are general um, considerations and general risk when you're doing any operation but there are also specific risk uh, depending on the on the surgery or the offending organ that you that you you're going to operate on so that's the main thing and it needs to be informed the consent that you will take is now now becomes a medical legal uh, document um and you have to be assured that you have the patient has made an informed consent apart from that then you need to then go through general things like like fasting if they need to fast uh, shaving or, or, or prepping the area uh, if it's the abdomen or the legs or, or you know the groin um then you know they, they need to understand about medications patients when you tell them don't you know nothing to eat or drink from midnight the night before surgery they don't take their hypertensive medical they're not told if you're fasting you're fasting uh so their hypertensive medications their diabetic medications their epileptic medications and if they don't take these then the morning of surgery their blood pressure will be you know off the scale the diabetes will be uncontrolled they may even fit so they need you know you need depending on your medication and, and how bad your symptoms are you need to take your medication so it has to be it's not something you bring people in for surgery and and you leave them blind to figure out because most of these people are not aware they don't know and you you have to spend the time and effort explaining to them uh you know what they need to do to prepare uh coming into surgery because as good as you will come into surgery the better you're prepared coming into surgery the better will be the outcome and do we normally do uh for instance blood tests ecg chest x-rays or is it the um age dependent uh, no um you you know uh, something like a complete blood count i would do on anyone because you want to make sure that you know that there is it's not an occult occult meat hidden um anemia that they do have blood and their blood count is of a, of, of a sufficient level um to sustain an operation their platelet count those are just very basic so everyone gets a, a complete blood count if it's a general anesthetic and I, and I presume Nadira and I'm, I'm speaking here you know uh not not local procedures but but general uh, you would do a, a kidney a renal function test check the kidneys most intravenous um, anesthetic agents are cleared from the body by the kidneys so you want to make sure things like your creatinine and and your other um renal yes. function tests are, are normal so that you know that the, the kidneys will be able to actively and appropriately um excrete the the anesthetic agents and drugs in a timely fashion apart from that now it becomes a little bit more specific um one on the age age factor is always uh, the main thing when you're ordering or you're asking for you know um radiological modalities like a chest x-ray to make sure the lungs are okay an ecg you would do to make sure the heart tracing is okay um so you would do that for you know any smoker 
over the age of 25, I would do a chest X-ray. Um, but patients who are non-smokers over 40, 45, uh, you know, we would do a chest X-ray and an ECG just to make sure that there are no hidden uh, issues or, or problems with the heart and the lungs. Of course, depending on the reason or the reasoning behind why we, we go up, you know, the operation is indicated, then we go on we, to more specifics. So if it's a, a colon cancer, or we're suspecting a colon cancer, we would have already done a colonoscopy and gotten a biopsy and have a, a tissue diagnosis. This is cancer. We will also want to stage the patient. So you do, you know, you will do a CT or and or an MRI, and you know, you, but those are more. They, those become more patient and disease specific. Do we normally group and cross-match and have blood in reserve for these patients, um, or is it dependent on the type of surgery, for instance, laparoscopic versus general? The, the, the need for blood um, is is all uh, disease and, and patient-oriented. If a patient is going in anemic, and you will know that beforehand, obviously you will want to top them up either in the immediate perioperative period or else once they're on the, the table. Um, grouping and blood is one of the most difficult commodities in this country to uh, to get and, and, and to have at any point. We have a chip system, very barbaric um, system of obtaining blood um, in, in, in this country. Um, and, and this is this is a great downfall to many patients. It's a first come first serve. Our blood bank works on a first come first serve. So the the more uh, the sicker the patient or the more bleeding there's a bleeding uh, patients will obviously get the blood before somebody who is say undergoing uh, colorectal or uh, gastric stomach cancer removal. So a lot of our blood in this country, in the blood bank, which is only a very limited supply, um, goes, you know, to, to gunshots and stab wounds, you know, in the public institutions. And I make no apologies about, about sharing that with you. Um, so if, if there is enough time, so that if it's elective surgery, I would get um, my patients, if we're thinking that we, this patient may need blood, I'll get them to the family to go and donate because you wouldn't get if you don't give so i will get them to donate probably twice as much units of blood that will that i may require so if i require i think i may require two units i will ask them to to get you know to donate four it's done on a chit system so they bring back to me a chit saying their mother's name or, or, or father's or girlfriend's name um, you know, that this blood, this blood or unit of blood has been donated to her. Saying that now, you know, the blood that was donated is not exactly the blood that the patient is going to get. That goes to somebody else. And the cross-match, what you were saying, what you were asking about cross-matching, uh, ladies and gentlemen, means that the blood, the specific blood, it, it has to be tight and tight specifically, uh, you know, donor, and recipient, um, and and we look for for, for certain A B A B O um, 
certain factors and two, two in particular, the AV system and the rhesus factor, um, because the blood has to be compatible. Uh, there have been horrific stories. I mean, not not too many um, in, in recent times, but about blood transfusions going bad. So compatibility with blood has to be of paramount significance. So although you can still donate blood um, for your relative, it, it does not mean that that translates into the patient. The blood will be ready for the patient because if, if the blood is not compatible or if it's incompatible, uh, that blood will, you know, will not reach the patient and, you know, surgery will have to be postponed. Right. Could you explain to us generally what is the appropriate aftercare after any type of surgery? I know it would be patient-centered, but generally, what do you recommend for patients after they've had a procedure done? Well, um, Nadira, as I alluded to you earlier, every surgery, there are risks, and hence, if there are risks, there are complications. Uh, so you need, you need to be mindful as a surgeon, as a staff, the nursing staff, and as the patient, that things can go wrong. Um, and, you know, especially with, 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 with more uh, significant surgeries, you need to, you need to have a, a low threshold, a very low threshold when the patient is operated and goes back to the ward you know, blood pressure monitoring, urinary urinary uh, monitoring, urinary output monitoring, accurate input and output monitoring, temperature um, monitoring, the heart rate, all of these things have to be looked at very closely in the immediate post-operative period because they may be the heralding the first sign of trouble. Apart from that then, you know, we need to, then, of course, their neurological status, making sure that they are, they are weak, um, they are oriented in time, place, and person. They know the time, they know where they are, um, they know who they are. Um, and th those are very important that, that, you know, we can't stress enough to the nurses and those who are looking after the patients on the ward once, uh, you know, once the surgery is, is finished. We then do objective testing you know um if the patient has lost blood we we, we look at their, their blood count in the first um post-operative day day their kidney function test because as i said to you earlier on you you clear the anesthetic agents via the kidney but in so doing you can you can cause a little transient um damage to the kidney so you you make sure and you check and make th that the kidneys are, are functioning and that all all is well right dr sokai we have to take a short commercial break now when we come back we'll be talking a little more about colon cancer surgery and colon cancer and about robotic surgery thank you Nadine. the best insight instant feedback accountability the all-new talk radio freedom 106.5 the best insight, instant feedback, accountability, the all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5. Welcome back, Trinidad and Tobago. This is Freedom 106.5 FM, and we're in the feature called Doctors on Call. So let's head back to Dr. Rambokas and her guest, Dr. Sukai. 
Thank you, Tosca, and thank you, listeners. Dr. Sukai, we've been talking about surgery and general surgery, and uh, we're going to talk about one of your passions, which is colon cancer. What exactly is colon cancer, and how can colon cancer present? Uh, Dr. Ambukas, colon cancer is one of the top uh, cancers in the world. It's uh, the top it's in the top three cancers in the United States. There are estimated on over 150,000 cases that will be uh, diagnosed in the States this year, which is close to 8% of all cancers um, that will be diagnosed with an estimated death rate of, you know, uh, not rate, but absolute numbers of over 52,000 in 2023 in the states which represent about nine percent of cancer deaths in the states colon cancer is very prevalent in trinidad and tobago as well i don't have the exact figures um as a you know at this time but it, it's caused by by your first of all the colon is the last part of the digestive tract so the last part of, 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 of your your gastrointestinal tract um, and it starts at the at the end of the small bowel, um, where the appendix and the cecum is, and it goes all around um, into the rectum and then anus where you where you excrete. Colon cancers are you know the, the cells, the mucosa, the lining of the of the colon. Uh, you get a, a proliferation or, or exaggerated cellular response cells. Uh, excess cells grow. Um, it, it, it's an exaggerated response. These cells then form uh, a mass or a polyp. It initially starts as a polyp, uh, and then you get a full-blown cancer because of the abnormal, the abnormal growth of these cells. And and what symptoms do patients normally present with? Uh, the, 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 one of the first symptoms is a change in bowel habit, uh, whereby they get new onset diarrhea or, or constipation or alternating diarrhea and constipation. Another alarming feature and one in which they, they present most um, often with is blood in or on the stool. They also can present with a feeling of incomplete evacuation or emptying. When they're finished stooling, they still feel that there is something there, and this is probably due to the mass effect, the effect of the growth being there that giving the, that gives them the sensation that they that they have incomplete uh, feeling of incomplete evacuation. You can also get ab abnormal abdominal cramps or pain that that doesn't go away, unexplained weight loss, where you your patient would lose weight. They're not trying to lose weight and, and, and it can't be explained. Right. Patients and... can, can, due to anemia, where a low blood count because of the blood loss, um, they can feel, you know, fatigued, uh, tired, and weak as well. So those are the some of the of the of the common um symptoms. But let me explain to you that a lot of them who I see um initially would have absolutely no symptoms. 
And what age do we start screening? Because prevention is better than cure. And what kind of tests do we normally use? Well, uh, because of the, the incidence of, of colorectal cancer um, has been on the increase since 2021, um, they have changed. Um, and this is who? Uh, the World Health Organization has changed the, the screening uh, age for colon cancer. Used to be at, from the age of 50. That has now been dropped to the age of 45 um, years of age. And that is only because we are seeing younger and younger patients um, with, you know, developing colorectal cancer. A, a relatively, when it comes to screening, Nadira, a relatively um, inexpensive home test is the, the fecal immunochemical testing, which is uh, testing the, 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 the feces for or your stool for blood. And that's about 79% specific, but it's really, it's a really a crude test. And I would, I would say that patients who are asymptomatic um, has they, who have absolutely no symptoms uh, and they, you want to do a home, a cheap, cheerful home test, you can probably do that. But really the mainstay of, of screening and of testing for colorectal cancer is a colonoscopy, which can both be both diagnostic, so you can actually diagnose if there is a mass, you would actually see it, you then take biopsies and you biopsies is you know there are small pieces of tissue that you send off to an independent assess assessor known as a pathologist who will then study these cells under a microscope and then tell you whether they're malignant i.e cancer or benign a colonoscopy can also be therapeutic uh, all colon cancers all colon cancers develop from polyps they start off as polyps tiny little growth as remember i said earlier on that it's it's this abnormal and exaggerated uh growth in cells which starts as a polyp and then and then if left unabated goes on to form a large mass known as you know known as your colon cancer but these small polyps can be removed a, a, a procedure called a polypectomy at the time of colonoscopy and in so doing you can negate the risk then um, of that polyp being cancerous. And where commonly does colon cancer present and how do we stage colon cancer? Well, colon cancer, the colon, as, as I said, it extends from the right side of the abdomen uh, and it, it, it goes all around across. So you have the right colon, the transverse colon that goes, that traverses the the upper abdomen, and then the left colon on the left side, the sigmoid colon and the rectum. So anywhere in that tube, you can get colon cancer. You can get this abnormal proliferation or growth of these cancer cells. The most common site is usually the left colon on your left side by your left, you know, just above your left groin, known as a sigmoid and rectum. Though that, that's a commonest area but you can get it anywhere along that 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 tube in as far as staging goes most cancers they are staged uh 
using a, a specific staging. It, it's, it's not an ad hoc um, uh, um, system at all. It, it's well, it, it's an internationally recognized TNM staging. And you have stage one, two, three, and four, or stage A, B, C, and D. Stage A1 will be localized disease. Stage two, localized mean that it is it is within the bowel uh, or within the, the, the rectum, in the cells, the lining of, of, of the cells of the, the colon. And of course, this would be the best case scenario. If you are, if you do have colon cancer, of course, the best case scenario is not having it at all. But if you do have it, um, this would be the best case because you 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 can go ahead and do and, and have surgery and and remove the, the that complete part of the, the colon. Stage two, then you is where you have regional spread, and by regional spread, I mean to contiguous or, or adjacent lymph nodes, right, which drain which drain the bowel. Um, and that carries a, a, a lesser five-year survival rate, probably of the order of, of, of 73%. Stage one, whereas localized, maybe already five-year survival rate. And again, we measure cancer survival as a five-year survival rate. So in five years, how would this patient do once they've had, uh, you know, surgery and, and treatment? So if it's localized or stage one, it's the, the uh, survival rate, the percentage of patients who would be who would be alive in five years after diagnosis and treatment would be 90%. For regional spread, which is stage two, it'll be 73%. Uh, stage three is where you have distant spread um, and, and that survival, of course, will, will, will drop significantly uh, because it's, you know, the horse, uh, the proverbial horse has bolted and, the, and the, the cancer is now within the bloodstream, within the lymphatics. Um, probably, you know, the two commonest areas that it, that it spreads to in a, for colorectal cancer is the, the liver and the lung. And the five-year survival is 15%. So that is, you know, getting cancer at a late stage like that it, it is never a good thing. And um, what type of um, treatment options are available for colon cancer? And is it all surgical and dependent on the stage? Um, well, it is, yes. It is dependent on the stage, um, Nadira. But like for all solid organ tumors, and this is a, this is a rule of thumb for all solid organ tumors, um, breast, bowel, stomach, um, thyroid, the mainstay of the mainstay of treatment is surgery. You need to get that um that, that tumor out. That cancer needs to needs to needs to be you know resected and removed. So you decrease what we call the tumor burden, the amount of tumor in the body, you decrease that that burden. However, you know this really Always a mainstay of treatment. Surgery is dependent on well on as well on the stage, because if somebody presents with stage four, where is the, the tumor has metastasized or spread to you know all over the body, to the lungs, to the to the uh, brain, to the liver, 
it's difficult at that point uh, to cure the patient because you can't be going after all of these organs. Um, so we rely on other adjuvant or, 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 or you know, um, therapies which have come too shortly. But in terms of surgery, um, you 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 know those patients you can't cure the stage four patients you can't cure them by surgery because you you could remove remove the colon but how do you remove their lungs their liver you know their brain their bones it's impossible um, but remember that these patients may have come to you initially because of bleeding because of bowel obstruction where the growth is now obstructing the the, the flow of fecal matter. And, and it's going to obstruct and burst. So then you you know you you ha have to you know you can afford these patients an oper uh, operation whereby you can alleviate their symptoms, stop the bleeding, uh, you know, get rid of the bowel obstruction, um, so that they you know even when they're undergoing further treatment, they, they will they will still be comfortable, and and will you will give them a better chance of survival. <clears throat> so you mentioned uh, adjuvant therapy. Is that radiotherapy, chemotherapy, um, and are these managed by multidisciplinary teams? Yes, but cancer, all cancers now, um, regardless of, of the site, uh, you know, we try to, uh, you know, um, involve and enable a multidisciplinary team approach. Uh, it's not cancer is no longer a one man show as it used to be many years ago. Um, you know, we, we, we involve and very early from, from the diagnosis, um, straight down to the end, we involved the surgeon, the radiologist, the pathologist, uh, the, 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 the chemotherapist, the radio, radiotherapist, support workers all with a view to getting the best uh, response and plan for that patient. And chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy and immunotherapy and, and, and specific targeted therapies are all part of a very integral um, discipline within, within cancer treatment in 2023. And, and they all play, we all play, you know, just uh, a, an equal role in its management. Right. We have to take a short commercial break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking about robotic surgery. Thank you. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability, the all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. So good morning to you once again, 15 minutes to the top of 10 o'clock, and we're back inside with Dr. Rambokas and her guest, Dr. Sukai, on Doctors on Call. Good morning to you. Thanks again, Tosca, and to our listeners. And today we have uh, Dr. Sukai, and he's been talking about laparoscopic surgery, colon cancer, and now we'll move on to a little bit about robotic surgery. Dr. Sokai, could you tell us what exactly is robotic surgery? Uh, robotic surgery is, uh, you know, a more sophisticated form of laparoscopic surgery, or it has evolved from laparoscopic surgery, 
where it's also called robotic assisted surgery because the robots are not are not working on their own but they work with with the surgeon um, and it allows it just allows surgeons to perform you know many types of complex procedures uh, with a certain degree of precision flexibility and control that that is more um allowed than with conventional surgery so okay. the surgeon the surgeon is you know like laparoscopic surgery you have the camera and and the the arms the, the arms are, are, are this is part of the robot that works the surgeon sits at a console at, at, at a computer and he is able to to control the arms of the of the robot and in so doing you know is able to to perform a lot more complex procedures than would have otherwise been performed and which type of procedures oh. uh, do you think could be performed with robotics well one of the first um type of surgeries um and where where robotic surgery has been probably perfected was with the urologists and the, where they use it for prostatectomies prostatectomies as you you know you know is the removal of the prostate the prostate gland uh is quite prone to becoming cancerous it, it's endemic in trinidad um so removing the prostate uh carries it you know uh, a lot of a lot of uh, complications uh, dribbling urinary incontinence erectile dysfunction because of the nerves that run very close to the prostate and i think that you know um, this is one of the reasons why they have been working and, and um, the proponents of, of, of neurological and, and prostatic surgery you know have been in this innovative field of, of trying to to prevent nerve damage, um, and this is why the, the robot was was designed. So robotic surgery was first designed in this prostatectomy, and the results in in proper hands, as you know, doing a prostatectomy, removing the prostate, uh, is is far superior than an open or even a laparoscopic, the laparoscopic method. In terms of nerve sparing. And, and, and urinary incontinence. So is robotic surgery more precise and eliminates human error? Well, um, Nadira, does it eliminate human error? Remember, the surgeon is again controlling through a console, through a computer um, on, on a side desk. He's controlling, but the, def the definition in terms of the view, you know, it's a, it's congenital con convention surgery is is two you know two-dimensional so two is laparoscopic surgery robotic surgery allows you a 3d view of the surgical site and that 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 is probably one of the most uh most amazing um in in a, a intervention where whereby you can get a, a full 3d picture the surgeon can now can now see in three dimension the surgical site so it does not, it, 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 it will not totally eliminate human error, but it certainly, 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 uh, you know, reduces it to a minimum. 
So recently, robotic surgery was done at Portisbean General Hospital. What procedure was done? And uh, do you see that this would become a trend in our medical practice? The, this robotic surgery um, that was performed through an, initi an initiative through the University of the West Indies and the Surgical Society Organization of Trinidad and Tobago, um, you know, the company came came down from, I think, England um, to loan us and, you know, in, in try to inveigle us into, into buying the, the robot and, and all its um, consumables. The surgery that was done was a cholecystectomy, so the removal of the, the gallbladder. And these and this surgery performed, I think, three times in Portsmouth on that day, uh, were all very, very successful. The company, again, is, is, in, is uh, negotiating um, within the healthcare system and privately to, to, to get into some partnership because they do want to sell the robot. Um, and as you can imagine, it's, it's very expensive. Uh, and, and, and try and, and get it into, into the market in Trinidad so it can be used. Obviously, there, there's a, a huge learning curve to this. You cannot just go say you're going to do robotic surgery. There's a huge learning curve. Um, time is money. Um, in, in like everything else, but especially in surgery. So the longer the, the surgery will take, you know, the more the, 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 there will be the price tag. And of course, the patient will have to pay. I mean, I'm talking privately now. The patient will have to pay for the use of the robot. Um, and and it, it will become a costly, you know, a very costly venture. But I think that, you know, Robotic surgery is probably, you know, here to stay. They're performing all sorts of complex procedures worldwide. Uh, the surgeons in Trinidad are all excellent and, 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 and willing to learn and are quite capable. And I, I would like, love to see it in my time coming and, and where the young surgeons are able to train and, and take this and move this initiative forward. <clears throat> and is the prepping for this surgery as well as the aftercare similar to laparoscopic and general surgery? Well, uh, yes, yes, in a short answer, yes. But with robotic surgery, it has been shown that there are fewer, fewer complications, um, one of which is uh, surgical site infections, because again, you know, you're dealing with minimally invasive, so small incisions. You get less pain because of the incision and blood loss. You have a shorter hospital stay and quicker recovery. And then, of course, the, the smaller, less noticeable scars. But remember, the offending organ is the same offending organ that is going to be removed either with, with open general surgery, laparoscopic surgery, or in fact, robotic surgery. So the prepping goes, you know, hand in hand once you prepare a patient for general surgery for a specific um, procedure, regardless of, of how you do it, the, the, the prepping will go along more or less the same. And, and which procedures you think in the future should be done via robotics uh, that are complicated presently, being done by conventional laparoscopic and general surgery? Well, I mean, just moving away from colorectal and general surgery, one 
area and that they have used this quite successfully, albeit, uh, I don't want to use the word experimental, but, but in, a, in a very um, ad hoc manner, and only one or two centers in the world is with coronary artery bypass grafting. So, so bypass of the heart, they have used it quite successfully. Um, in terms of general surgery, you know, it'll be good, you know, to see it done for all the complex cancer cases, the complex pelvic tumors, uh, pancreatic cancers, even the stomach cancers within the thorax, um, the head and neck, you know, uh, there are um, areas within the brain, within the skull, and in, in certain types of brain, brain surgery that is not amenable to, to, to conventional surgery. And, you know, it is hopeful that with the advent and the, and the evolution of robotic surgery, that these cancers that were once thought to be inoperable can now be successfully removed uh, and, 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 and patient, you know, survival uh, become of, of importance. Right. Dr. Sokai, what are you currently working on? Are you currently publishing any more textbook uh, pages to surgical texts? Uh, are you working on any studies? Um, Nadira, to be quite honest, I, I assist um, my, not my, but some of the staff at, at Port of Spain Hospital in terms of, of uh, I, um, just giving my my views and my experience um, in in terms of you know writing and, and publishing articles, peer you know reviewing what they have done because they they do they are more involved on the ground and and doing the, the studies. Um, but I do help them with that. I'm involved in teaching um, the both the medical students and um, the, the surgical training. I don't have any. Um, uh publications in the making at the moment but i am involved in a in a, in a textbook um a surgical textbook on, on surgical sepsis um in in dublin at the royal college of surgeons which should be published i would be hopeful uh by next year okay great and how can patients or potential clients contact you well um my, my public appointment is at Port of Spain General Hospital so you, you you know you have to come through there either through the, the emergency um, if it is an emergency or rather your 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 general practitioner or the local health center can refer you through to the surgical or patient's clinic um, and that, that's public that's publicly privately my office is at um, Sinclair Medical Center and you you know you can get just call into the to the institution and they, they will put, put you through to my office. Okay. Well, Dr. Sokai, you were quite informative and educational today. I want to thank you for being here and taking your time off. I want to thank my co-host, Tosca. And for our listeners out there, I hope you join us next week and have a great day. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5.